Welcome to this episode of the Tennis IQ Podcast. I'm Brian Lomax. And I'm Josh Berger. So for those of us who like to catch our episodes on YouTube, you will notice that Josh is in a new location. So Josh, what's going on? All right. So I, I am indeed in a new location. You might notice the uh, sailing themed artwork around me. And that is because I've actually moved to Newport, Rhode Island. Um, I recently accepted and started a new position at the International Tennis Hall of Fame as an assistant tennis pro uh, that will include some sports psychology work as well. And uh, yeah, really excited to be here. And uh, yeah, just, uh, you know, you'll, you'll notice the new location with uh, some, some new interesting artwork. Um, so yeah, that's, that's a little bit of an update about me. Um, but I know that many of our listeners and viewers, I'm sure, have been watching and tuning in to the U.S. Open. So uh, Brian and I are going to uh, give a little bit of our perspective through a sports psychology lens um, on what we've been seeing in some of these matches. So, uh, yeah, but why, why don't we let's let's jump right in. So, Brian, um, I know we're, we'll t- discuss a few different players, a few different matches. Um, why don't we jump right into a question I know I've been asked a lot about in a, a moment in particular and that's a lot and that's that's Djokovic and really what happened at the end of um, his match against Pablo Carreño Busta. Yeah this is interesting and I think just so for the people who are listening in I think the other two matches or things that we'll talk about are um, the Tsitsipas Chorich match and a little bit on we'll end on Serena we want to end on a nice positive note and uh, we should also note that uh, we're recording this on Thursday um during the day. So Serena and Victoria Azarenka have not yet played, so we won't be able to get into any of that. But if we go back to Djokovic, um, this was a really kind of an interesting situation. And I think, you know, when we talked about managing emotions on the court in, in our one of our previous episodes, we also mentioned that there is there's a dynamic. It's two people out there. So if we go back to what was going on on the court, Djokovic had set points to win that first set. And the thing that I like that Carreño Busta did is he continued to play, even though um, I think it was 40 love in that particular game. And he played some really great points, forcing Djokovic um, to get a little bit frustrated, a little bit angry. And that's when Djokovic, the first bit of anger came out. He slammed that ball into the side of the court, and um, and we've seen him do this before, right, Josh? Um, he's had these types of outbursts, and the the thing that you know he hasn't necessarily been burned by it, not to this extent, of course. Uh, he's been able to recover from that. I think he's been of the top three guys. He's the one who probably will go more negative than the other two, but seems to recover back. Um, but it usually takes a little time. And in, in this case, he didn't have that. And then so he loses that next game. And, you know, he sort of flippantly hits the ball to the back. And, and obviously, he hits the, hits the line judge. And so the first thing that I thought about, Josh, was, was our discussion a few weeks ago about emotions. And even though there are times where anger can be facilitative toward performance, I feel like it's, it's, um, it's almost like you're riding a bull 
it's tough to control. And I think the number of times it takes you to where you actually want to go is not all that often. And when you engage with anger, I think more often than not, bad things are are likely to happen. And so when we saw, you know, I, I was a little worried for Djokovic when he slammed that ball into that side of the court. And even though he didn't hit the ball quite as hard when he hit it at the, at the you know, when he hit it at the back curtain, it was still something out of character. It's something that you don't see players do. They don't typically hit the ball like that to the back. They might hit it with their racket and roll it. They don't usually turn around and, you know, flip the ball with their racket like that. So that was my feeling at the time is that he let his anger and frustration boil up to a place where he committed some actions that were regrettable. And one thing that I've told a lot of the college players that I've worked with is when you step outside of the norms of behavior, when you go basically put yourself into a code of conduct situation, you are now putting your fate into other people's hands. No longer about you being in total control. And and sometimes you can get lucky that the officials won't penalize you for something. But if they do, it's not their fault for them doing their job. It's your fault for putting your fate in their hands through, their, through your own behavior. And that's how I felt about Djokovic on, uh, you know, during that match. Is, is It's a shame that he leaves the tournament that way. But he put himself in that situation by not being able to manage what was going on at the end of that set. So what do you think of, what, what did you think about that situation, Josh? Yeah, I, I have a lot of thoughts. Um, n- number one, I'll, I'll start with, um, you know, going back to that conversation we had a few weeks ago where we talked about managing emotions on the court. And I mean, I stand by, and, and I think we're in agreement here that there are certain players, and I think McEnroe is one of them, where maybe at times his anger, you know, he was out of control with his, his anger, but I think oftentimes he actually used it strategically yes, where maybe yeah. he would use it at a you know, certain time in the match where the other player had the momentum and that few minute outburst is, you know, just enough to rattle the other player and actually turn things around or it ins- really inspires him and motivates him. Um, and, and actually ups his focus rather than being out of control. But I, I believe that the vast, Vast majority of people that that anger it it eats away at you and it it it's very tough to con- to to think clearly when you're in that that frame of mind. You're not thinking about you know your how to set up your favorite shot. You're not thinking about your strategy. You're consumed by those emotions in that moment. Um, and I think what we what we witnessed with Djokovic is is really a clear example of that. Um, I mean, you said. That, you know that, that game before he slammed the ball into the side, and I believe James Blake actually made a comment. Hey, he must be feeling really confident in his accuracy because you know if that ball goes up a few feet higher, he you know he's hitting it right into the I believe it was the photographer's pit. Um, so you know, and and he has done this this before where you know it hasn't hit anybody, but it's um, it's it's been a close situation. So you know, I, I think people need to understand that, um, you know, whether it's him, whether it's anybody, I mean, I, I see kids, I see college players doing, doing the same and the vast 90 
98% of the time, 99, maybe more percent of the time, nothing, nothing happened. Nobody gets hit with the ball. Um, but it, it just takes that one time where, you know, where you get unlucky. And, and frankly, I mean, everybody knows he wasn't obviously trying to hit them, but when you are playing with fire, when that happens, and we've seen other players, whether it be Dennis Shapovalov, um, Tim Henman, Tim, Tim Henman, a little while back, um, even David Nalbandian, where inadvertently they injure either a line judge or a chair umpire. And, you know, the rule is the rule. But I think what's, what's important here from, from a sports psychology lens is recognizing when, you know, when your emotions are starting to get to that boiling point. So I think it really comes down to awareness and, um, you know, noticing that and not just acting on whatever your emotions are in that moment um, so that they don't boil over. Um, and, you know, having also developing some tools that you can use, whether it's breathing, whether it's a routine that you use in between points and between games, even that, that you can utilize when you feel yourself getting close to, to code red to, to that, that point. Um, so, you know, it's, it's unfortunate. I think, I think, uh, you know, he certainly issued a, a very professional apology and it, it sounds like he wants to, you know, is planning to do some, some inner work and, you know, wants to learn and grow from this situation, um, which is, you know, certainly the right perspective to have. Um, and, you know, people make mistakes and, you know, hopefully um, he and hopefully, you know, fans around the world and tennis players recognize that, you know, that, that it's dangerous. It's, it's just a dangerous thing to do. Um, not the first time that it's happened. I'm sure, you know, will happen again, but hopefully it can just be, a you know, thankfully it seems like the, the, um, line judge is okay. And hopefully it can just be a, a learning experience. Um, but yeah, that was definitely an unfortunate moment because he was, you know, certainly the overwhelming favorite, um, for good reason. He was undefeated for the year up to that point. So definitely an unfortunate situation. Um, hopefully it can be a learning experience for him as well as tennis players around the world. And I thought he was playing really well at the end of that first set going into that second to last game. Uh, it seemed like he was beginning to find his range and, and, and to assert his dominance and just let a few points get to him. So, um, let me get your take on it. Let's go a little bit deeper on anger, I think, because it says one – I hear a couple of objections sometimes when I'm talking to players. One statement that I hear sometimes people say is anger makes me or helps me play better. What, what do you – how do you react to that, Josh? I mean, I'm – frankly, I'm skeptical. I'm, I'm very, very skeptical of that. As you know, as I mentioned, I think it's the very rare person who that's actually the case for. Um, you know, I think if you can channel that in a way where, you know, maybe it helps you focus more or helps you be more motivated, um, then, you know, maybe, maybe that's the case, but I, I think generally I I'm, I'm just very skeptical of that. Um, I, I think, you know, you can, you can even ask then, then why aren't you? Why don't you uh, find something to to get angry about when you're winning? That is exactly what I say. Is that as soon as you start playing better, you don't get angry anymore, right? <laughs> and if that was really true, then you would keep yourself in a constant state of anger. Yeah, um, and so we know that that is not what happens. And most likely, 
when people say that, it's just trying to rationalize behavior. It's Definitely. probably not as much awareness of what's really going on out there. Now, I've also heard some people say that, oh, I think it's a good thing to let it out every now and then. And I'm going to go back to what I said earlier. I, I feel like any time that you start to engage with that emotion, you're jumping on that that ball and you don't know where it's going to take you. Um, and I think the more that you engage with it, the worse that can be. As you mentioned already, we know that anger affects a person's decision-making, affects your ability to be rational. We haven't yet mentioned, though, that anger also affects your balance and equilibrium, and it can also affect your your motor control. And in a sport like tennis, where it's we're talking about really fine motor skills, you have to be precise and accurate with a lot of this, you're just a little bit off, that can be the difference. Small between, margin. Yes, between winning and losing. So... I think that's another reason why we want to make sure that we're managing our emotions in, in such a way so that um, we can keep good decision-making, we can keep our balance, keep our motor control. And while McEnroe and certainly maybe even Jimmy Connors were able to do this, I think you're right, they're the exceptions. And to be honest, some of that may have been orchestrated. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, and and that they maybe have been acting in such a way as to get themselves going, but knowing that those guys knew tennis was a fight better than anybody, and I yeah. think that they used that as a weapon. No, I, I want to get back to um, you know when you were saying that anytime you get angry, and you know, there's a difference between feeling angry and acting, mm-hmm. you know, in a way of anger. So that could be smashing the racket. That could be smashing a ball that could be yelling or swearing or, you know, insulting yourself. I, I, I can't serve. I can't hit a backhand or worse. I'm sure we've all heard it. Yeah. Um, one thing that I, and you know, once you get to that point, you rather than being in control, you're actually oftentimes if there's an umpire there um, that you're, you're ceding that control you, you, to to somebody else, to the official. And actually, it's interesting you mentioned college tennis. Um, I, I've seen, I'm sure you've seen it as well, situations where the end of a match happens, player loses, they get frustrated, and what happens? Maybe they, maybe they slam a ball. Maybe they throw their racket. Maybe they yell and swear. And their match is over, so what happens? Another player on their team gets the point penalty or the you know whatever sort of penalty. So that's an example of it's not just you being penalized. Your behavior and your lack of control is actually harming the team and harming somebody else. Yeah, I've been involved in coaching three different college matches in which that happened, and <laughs> the players are, they they should know that, but they obviously in that moment they they don't uh, they don't recognize that. Um, so. All right. Have we covered the Djokovic thing? Do is there any other things that we want to talk about there, Josh? The one, the one other thing I would add, and again, you know, ne- neither of us is trying to get be, be too harsh on Djokovic. I mean, it happens. It was a mistake. There was clearly no intent whatsoever. 
Um, I think the other thing, you know, that, that puts it into context a little bit is um, maybe some of the, the additional pressures that he was feeling. Um, number one, he was undefeated for the year, as we mentioned, and um, neither Nadal or Federer were playing in the U S open the first time, the first grand slam tournament that didn't have either of them since I believe the 1999 U S open. So I think, you know, Djokovic probably, he was the overwhelming favorite. And I think he probably recognized this as a great opportunity to get a little bit closer, you know, go from 17 grand slams to, to 18, where it'd be one behind Nadal and two behind Federer. So I think number one, um, first thing to consider, he was undefeated. So there's definitely a lot of pressure associated with that. And also, I mean that, you know, we, we spoke about the Adria tour. We don't need to get into that, but that had happened earlier in the summer. He got a lot of negative press over that. And this, um, he is the co-president of the, this new PTPA, which people may or may not know about is this, um, new players association that he's in the process of starting or trying to start. Um, so he's the, the point is, um, between everything that's going on off court and things earlier in the summer and his undefeated season, he had, you know, possibly other stressors that, you know, when you get to a high pressure moment makes it a little bit more likely for things to boil over. If you're dealing with other things in your life, especially if you're not able to compartmentalize and, you know, leave those things off the court when you're on court and really focus on what you're doing. So I think, you know, the, the context is, is always important. And I think in this case, if you dig a little deeper, you, you see, you know, maybe, maybe some, we can't get into his head fully, but you know, maybe some reasons why he, you know, could have been a little bit more agitated or a little bit more edgy. So I think that that context is also important. Yeah, that's certainly possible. Okay. So let's talk about, uh, Sissipas and Chorich that match um bit of a collapse there so let's let's hear your thoughts first on this one yeah so um so okay so a little bit of context again uh Pass was up two sets to one and he was up five one in the fourth set and he had a number of match points throughout the set but Ascent, including serving serving for the match, and he's a you know very very strong server, um, very aggressive player. Serving for the match at five four forty love, but essentially from five one he lost six games in a row. To lose the set seven five, was also seen yelling, pretty much you know repeatedly at his father. Um, I guess his father had left the court um, for for a few minutes and rather than focusing on the task at hand, he seemed very distracted by that. Um, and yeah, it was, it was, you know, it, it does take two to tango and, and Chorich and we'll talk about this was, was definitely doing his part to make it, make it difficult. He made a lot of balls in, in play. Um, but yeah, Tsitsipas really seemed to struggle with that pressure. I mean, many of those match points that he had um, were first ball misses um, so yeah, it was, it was unfortunate to see, um, because he, you know, he, he put himself in a winning position, but when it was time to really close it out, he seemed to, to struggle with the nerves, seemed to maybe go for too much at times. And, you know, by the time we got to the fifth set and it was, you know, it was a very competitive fifth set as well. 
I think both players had in the back of their mind everything that had happened in that set before, mm-hmm. um, which I think you know helped push George to the finish line. Um, but yeah, Brian, what 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 were your thoughts on that match? Well, I think um, I guess a few things. First of all, Sissipas, he seems to be a bit of a hyper on edge dude a little bit. He has a lot of miss hits out there. And usually when you're miss hitting, I think there are two things going on. Either you're not watching the ball or these could be in combination. Not watching the ball and you're feeling some level of muscle tension in your body, often created by anxiety. And I, and I think we see that with him a lot. I think in one of those match points, he mishit a volley badly. Uh, as you mentioned, you know, a lot of first ball mistakes that, that is indicative of some level of anxiety going maybe too big too early in points. And you were talking about the context of, um, of Djokovic. I think maybe Tsitsipas felt this a little bit too because also Roger and Rafa are not there. He is projected to be a Grand Slam winner. He certainly has the game for it. And, and he's got this opportunity. Who knows? Maybe that was, is part of what he was feeling out there. Um, and I guess, you know, from a listener perspective, the good news is these guys are human. Everybody chokes. And you've probably heard this, Josh, in, the, in some of the players that you work with, that they, they're worried about choking or they feel like they're a choker or they struggle with closing out matches. Well, so does this guy who's in the top five in the world. He struggles with it too. And in fact, I would say every single person in the top 10, I can probably think of a match in which they struggle to close it out. This is a really difficult sport. And so... Tsitsipas' tweet after the match was rather funny that he he handled it well, saying something like, this is both the saddest and funniest thing that's ever happened to me. (laughs) And so it shows some good perspective. Very Gen Gen Z to to pull out your phone and tweet two minutes after a loss, I would say. (laughs) Yeah, but it actually not a bad perspective. It it, it sounds like in, in that way, He'll he'll get better from it. He'll get over it. He's not going to let it define who he is. Mm-hmm. Um, but if we go on the other side of the net, I thought what George said after the match was, was interesting. So I want to read this quote. Um, he said, I have to be honest and say that I was really lucky. I made some unbelievable returns and I was a little bit lucky at the end. In the third and fourth set, he was playing unbelievable tennis and I felt like I had no chance. In the fifth set tiebreak, I knew it was not going to be easy for him. So I tried to just keep the ball in the court and make him play as many balls as possible. So you you earlier said that George played his part here. And the part that he played is he made Tsitsipas earn it, or he was putting him in a position where Tsitsipas had to earn it. He was not going to be given this match. And that's that's the beauty of how, to me, how Chorich really came back was he made Tsitsipas work. He kept him on the court as long as possible. And then sort of the beauty of the U.S. Open is it does come down to that fifth set breaker. So the, the importance of those points really heightens a lot. And it's going to come down to just a few little things at the end. And it really tests you mentally 
when that happens. And and if you've got this attitude of, um, you know, you, you're going to make the other guy play. But I also felt like Chorich, the way he played in that tiebreaker, he actually was the one who was maybe dictating play a little bit more and hitting really well. And something came over him that he he stepped up and, and had the confidence in that moment. Um, so maybe it's a bit of a tale of a few different matches all in one there. But I thought it, it's great to see that dynamic, that we have a great player who struggled to close something out. We had another guy who understood, who basically his probability of winning the match I don't know exactly what it was, but when you're down 5-4, 40 love, and the other guys serve, it's pretty close to probably 5%. It's it's never zero, though, is it, Josh? That's, that's the, I think, a key takeaway from this is no matter what the score is, the probability of you winning is never zero. Absolutely. I think that... There's no clock, right? There's no clock. There's no way to, in basketball, if you're up by 10 points with you know, a few seconds left, you, you, you just run out the clock and it's, there's literally no way for, for the other team to come back. Um, tennis is different. There, there is no clock. There's no, you know, regardless of what the score is, the other player turns it on and starts winning every point. The, the match is going to turn around. So I think, I mean, my perspective was a couple of things. I mean, you mentioned it, that Tsitsipas is clearly one of the, has, has, or does, you know, deserves to be called one of the best players in the world. And even him, even, you know, Federer at Wimbledon, um, even, you know, any, any top player has had a situation where maybe they've had match points, maybe they've been in a winning position, they haven't been able to close it out. I think this this point is so important because I I hear junior players and, you know, college, adult, whoever, they – Maybe they blow a couple match points, or they—I'll I'll rephrase: they'll, they'll, they lose a match in which they had a couple match points, and they take it—they they take it really hard. They—they they start to identify as, you know, this is this is something that just happens to me, rather than recognizing that this happens to the best tennis players in the world. They experience these same nerves. They—they they too have had matches like this. Um, so I think, you know, I, I sort of see it in two different ways. I see number one for the person that lost when in that winning position, you could say, or when you're, you know, ahead trying to close it out, that it happened to the best in the world. Don't take it so hard. Try to learn from it. Try to notice, you know, what you would do different than the next time around. Um, and for the person who is losing and maybe facing match points, don't just try to hit the the return is, you know, return or the serve as hard as you can and just say, oh, this is, this match is over. I'm down five, two, you know, whatever this, this is over. You know, I, I just want to get this over with. No, the other player still needs to, to close it out. And we all know how tough that can be. So do your part, be a Borna Chorich, um, you know, and make the person play, make a lot of balls. If that's your playing style. I mean, if you play aggressive, you can continue to go for for your shots, absolutely, but but make them play, make them earn it when they're in that position because it can be really tough. They might be tight, they might be feeling the nerves, and you know you, you might surprise yourself. So don't you know don't put your head down and say oh it's just not my day today. Keep going and recognize hey they they might have a tough time closing this out. I need to give myself a chance 
to come back here by making a lot of balls and by, you know, playing in a, in a way where they have to really seal the deal rather than me handing it to them. And I think similar to when we were talking about Djokovic and Karenio Busta, Karenio Busta, even though it was only one set there, he played his part when he was down set points. He made Djokovic work and got into his head and so forth. And now he finds himself in the semifinals. He did something similar to Shapovalov. We're not going to talk about that match, but that's, you know, he, he won that match by playing that style. He, he makes people play. And, and it's not like he's pushing. He's making balls. He's being offensive. He's doing damage with his ground strokes, but he, he gets a lot of balls in play. So I think there's definitely something to be said for that style. And, and George has been playing pretty, pretty good ball for the last you know year and a half or so, I'd say. Um, and there's a reason he was seated. Um, so he, he's, uh, he's not an easy guy to beat. He's going to make you work. And uh, unfortunately for Stefanos, he found that out. Um, and as you said, the, everybody gets uh, anxious, nerves play a part. And, and so with that, let's come to Serena because it's um, – when I think about Serena, I feel like when she loses – and I think she's even said this. It hasn't necessarily come out as the most gracious thing she's ever said. But I think I'm a, I agree with her. When Generally, when she loses – it's because of her, whether that be nerves or frustration or something else going on. I feel like it's rare that the other player actually steps up and beats her. That doesn't mean it hasn't happened. It's happened plenty. But a lot of times when we see her lose um, in these events, it's, it's, um, it's because of her nerves. But um, in this tournament, she's been doing the, what – she has always done. So even in those, I think, matches where she's had some nerves, there's, if there's one thing you can generally count on in a Serena Williams match is there's a lot of determination and fight. She is not going to generally give you the match, even if you're up a little bit. I think we saw it last year against Bianca Andreescu down big in that, uh, in that, that third set. And, Again, there may have been a bit of a dynamic of closing it out, but Serena certainly made her charge, and she's famous for for doing that. And I feel like, and I'd love to get your perspective on this, Josh. We didn't really talk about this, but when she does those things, I wonder at times if the other player, if they're not experienced enough, if they actually just can't handle her level of intensity that's coming that it maybe it's so intimidating what she's doing that that actually maybe sometimes plays a part in, in what could be going on. What do you, what do you think of that? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's definitely part of it. I mean, I think she brings arguably more intensity and more, I mean, has more weapons than, you know, just about any other player. So I think once the, the person on the other side of the net notices that she's turning it on, it's, you know, it's like a deer in headlights type of situation where they, they recognize, uh oh, uh oh, he, he, here she comes. <laughs> yes. So, uh, no, I, I think you're, I think you're spot on there. I think, uh, yeah, she, she is known for, um, you know, maybe, maybe it, I mean, there's certainly plenty of examples where she's hot from the start and the other player doesn't seem to have much of a chance. 
but there are also plenty of matches where maybe she got off to, you know, a slower start, but you know, one she's able to with a crowd or without a crowd, as we've seen really pump herself up and get herself into that competitive mindset to, you know, where, where she's playing her best tennis and she almost wills herself to that point as, as we've seen time and time again. Yeah. And, uh, you know, she's had some three setters in this event. Um, Sloan Stevens, um, Sakari, who she played in the Western and Southern and lost to came back and, and, and played this. You had mentioned to me that the match that she played against her in the Western and Southern may not have been her best moment in that third set. Definitely. Definitely, yeah. Um, for anybody who, I guess, either saw it or didn't see it, Serena had won the first set, I, I believe, was was ahead, um, you know, similar to what we were talking about before, ahead, failed to close it out, Sakari won the second, and the third, Sakari ended up winning 6-1. It was 5-0 at one point. From a effort and attitude standpoint, it, it certainly wasn't, Serena's best to, to say the least, um, which is, which is very rare because as you said, you know, she's a player who I think is known for, um, you know, never giving up and, um, always, always fighting to the end, frankly. Um, so she, that, that was surprising, um, as I was watching that, but I also think it's important to note, and that this was it's against Sakari at Western and Southern open, which is, you know, generally in Cincinnati, but was in New York this year. So Serena's up against the same player, the same courts, or you know, the, the same tournament, about what, a week and a half later, something like that. And Serena has in the back of her mind that she she just lost to Sakari very recently. And she was down. Um, if we if we want to jump into this match, uh Serena was down, uh, I believe down a break in that third set. They were battling. Sakari's got a lot of game, you know, big hitter. Um, and Serena's down again. Now it would be very easy to say, oh, here we go again. Um, but that's not what she did. She turned it on. She turned the match around, and as you said, once she turns it around, it's pretty tough for other players to to really keep up at that point and, you know, won that third set 6-3, and um, yeah, I, I think a, a very strong showing of, of mental toughness, especially considering, um, you know, the, the fact that she had just lost to her uh, the, the tournament before very recently before. Yeah. I think if you're playing Serena, you, you have to be very mentally tough yourself to withstand that. And, yep. um, you know, we've seen players handle that in in the past. Um, but we've also seen many players who in the face of it, get intimidated and, and Serena can win and, and, and pull that out. I think it's, um, you know, again, you, you mentioned context. Let's give some context. Serena has a chance to get her 24th Grand Slam title here. There's, And that's maybe gets talked about way too much. I'm sure she feels it does. Um, which which I'll just – point of clarification. I, I, th- I think most probably know, but that would be – that would tie Margaret Court for the, for the most Grand Slam titles of all time. Yeah. And um, – so there's that. Maybe the, the, you know, does that play a part? Because it seems like it's been talked about now for quite a while. <laughs> um, so there's there's that. Um, 
maybe playing without fans will actually be easier. I don't know. Maybe there is, she's used to that. I mean, that I think certain players are are uh, handling this well. I mean, I think this may be a good thing for you know a player like Jennifer Brady. Perhaps she, she seems to actually be the hottest player on tour since we've come back from from coronavirus, and uh, she's playing in the semifinals today. Um, so you know, I wonder if they, uh, how that will play out in uh, in today's semifinal. The fact also that. Um, she has spent a lot of time on court in this event, and as you know, anybody who plays tournament tennis knows you want to minimize your time on the court. You would prefer the path of least resistance all the way to the title, and it's not that um, it's impossible for her to do this. It's just making it harder, these three-set matches, um, but she certainly battled tough going into this match against Azarenka. Um, well, you know, what are some of your other thoughts on Serena and, and what she's, you know, what she's uh, perhaps about to accomplish or, you know, has already accomplished at this U.S. Open? Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I've, I've been impressed. I've, uh, you know, she, she has had, as you mentioned, she's chasing history. She's chasing her, you know, to, to, to tie the record for, um, most Grand Slam titles, which is you know a big deal, a big deal. I think uh, you know she she's talked about it as well. It's something you know maybe one of the, the reasons why she's still playing um, that, that she wants that record. And she's been in a few finals at this point and and hasn't been able to to get the win, including at the U.S. Open. Um, so I, I think it's been impressive how she's turned it on at this point. Um, I, she has played some three setters, you know, that does take a toll. Um, I think we saw, um, a couple matches, one Carreño Bustas, we know, you know, played less than a set against Djokovic compared to Shapovalov who had played, um, a five setter, maybe, um, he's had some know, long matches prior to that one. Yeah, he has. And then when they played and it came down to the fifth set, it just seemed that um, Carreño Busta had more left in the tank because he'd spent less time on court. Um, but generally, to, to answer your question, um, yeah, I think I think that Serena is is capable of certainly firing herself up, um, even even in the absence of fans, which um, maybe other players aren't as capable of, or almost they feel a little flat without the fans. Um, so I, I think, yeah, I, I think she's she's got a great chance at. At, at history at this U.S. Open, um, but we'll see. I mean, you got I think all four of the the players that are in the semifinals are in great form right now. Yeah. Uh, so and 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 you have to be to to win five matches at at that le- at the highest level. Um, so it'll be inter- it'll be interesting. What are, do you have any any final thoughts on on Serena and her her well, run? I think, I think it will come down to the nerves again. I think that that. Um, you mentioned that she's been in some finals since we've been talking about getting from 23 to 24. So yep. she's come back from, um, you know, having a baby. And, you know, it's interesting. Tonight's match is, uh, you know, between two moms. It's not a, not a normal occurrence, but it's really pretty cool that that's happening in a U.S. Open semifinal. Um, but I feel like it's, it's going to come down to how Serena can manage those nerves and um, 
try to compartmentalize as much as possible the significance of what's going on and simply find her process of playing. If you or I could advise her, I think that's probably what we would try to get her to be most focused on is simply her process for playing good tennis point by point, trying to make each point as normal and similar as possible to other points. Definitely. Because I think when she, like we were saying earlier, when she, she has such weapons that serve and her ability to cover the court. And when she's playing her physical best, really difficult to beat her. Certainly there are players who can hang with her, even when Serena's at her best, but there aren't that many. And if she's able to do that more consistently, point after point, game after game, you'd have to favor her in most matchups. Um, so I think that that is going to be her challenge. Can she manage her, her, her nerves, her body chemistry in such a way that allows her to focus on the process of playing her own best tennis and if she can do that, especially in the, the tighter moments, mm -hmm. um, I think she can be successful. I think we'll know that she's not doing it. I think there are some tells when she's not doing it. I think she gets a little bit more um, expressive with her strokes and her reactions after points, etc. I think that that tends to be an indication that there's something happening underneath that not you know not all is well there on the mental and emotional side. I think when we see her sort of laser focused and locked in, we don't see any of that. She just sort of will make a mistake and move right on to the next point. Yep. But I think it's when we get some of the expressive stuff a little bit more dramatic perhaps that I think she's setting herself up to, to be uh, beaten when when that happens what, what, any thoughts on that josh yeah yeah um i think one you know i when you mentioned focusing on the process and focusing on her best brand of tennis yeah um i think it's very easy it would be very easy for her to have front first and foremost in her mind number 24 i'm going for history i'm going to tie the record um and thinking about that and i think when any tennis player, whether it's Serena, whether it's, you know, a, a top player or, um, you know, a, a, a club player or, or, you know, junior player or whoever is focused on the results, focused on winning the match, focused on, um, you know, beating your friend or focused on winning this match for your team. And just thinking about the result, you're not thinking about that process. You're not thinking about everything that you have to do that's going to help put you in a position to be successful, your strategy, your game plan, your intensity, your attitude, all these things that we've, that we've talked about in previous episodes. So I think that's, um, you know, I think it, it's a good lesson for, for anybody that in order to play your best, you don't, you shouldn't be focused on simply, you know, what's it going to take or no, think you shouldn't be focused on that result, but focused on, the steps in the process of getting that result. Um, and, you know, her thinking about how can she play her best brand of tennis? How can she 
get, you know, get into a fighting mindset, um, point in, point out. How can she maybe not fall behind? So she has to dig herself out and play another three setter. So she's playing, you know, sharp from the beginning. Um, thinking about these types of things is going to give her the best chance of winning that title. Yeah. And I think before we go, we should also point out that, um, you know, she's playing Azarenka today. I wanted to say something about Victoria Azarenka as well. Um, as people watch her play, maybe she'll be there on Saturday in the final. Maybe she won't. But if you can watch her play, she's a wonderful model of how to do the in-between points routine. She does it consistently, point to point. She takes her time. Um, She's not rushing from point to point. She does everything the same all the time. And I I love watching that. And I think when you look at some of her scores in this U.S. Open, that's indicative of somebody who is staying focused through an entire match. Absolutely. And, and that's really the benefit of an in-between points routine is that it gets you – it's supposed to get you – ready for each and every point. And that's physically, mentally, and emotionally. And that's one thing I really like about um, Azarenka's game is her dedication to that in-between point routine because I feel like it really really helps her. So from a sports psychology perspective, I'd love for listeners to watch how she executes that from point to point. I think there's a lot to learn from players who model that. Absolutely. And, uh, yeah, you mentioned, um, maybe you didn't, but the, the, it's based very similar to the, the 16 second cure, um, yes. from Jim Lear, which, um, you know, you can see as well with Sharapova when she played in a lot of, a lot of players, they'll, um, or, you know, some, some don't, but look out, look out for that. You, you'll see players who maybe they're fiddling with their strings and they, they seem to, to take a very deliberate process to their in-between points. So they can do, they're doing everything that they can to get themselves into that best mindset for the following point. They're not stuck thinking about, Oh, how did I miss that shot? The, the, in the previous point, Oh, why, how did I get broken that last game? They're, they're not thinking about that. They're already on to the next point. They're in the present moment and they're thinking about what am I doing now? What's important now? Um, so yeah, I, 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 I'm glad you brought that up. Um, and yeah, whether she's in the final on Saturday, um, or not, uh, I think, you know, you can watch on YouTube and yeah, definitely look out for that. Yeah. Well, that was a fun conversation, Josh. I think, uh, going through those, uh, three topics with the, the sports psychology lens has been, uh, been interesting. So, um, want to thank everybody for, listening first of all um and for um future episodes please subscribe to our podcast on your platform of choice um so we're on pretty much everything these days right google spotify apple anchored on fm yeah youtube of course right can't forget that and if you have any comments or questions about the mental game or even suggestions for future guests Please send Josh and I an email at tennisidqpodcast at gmail.com. As Josh mentioned, you can check us out on YouTube as well, Tennis IQ Podcast. 
If uh, you can also use the hashtag TennisIQ on Twitter, we are monitoring that uh, each day. So we'd love to see uh, you guys engage with us, and um, we've got some great guests coming up on future episodes. So we look forward to talking to you very soon. 